This morning's text comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Please join with me as we pray God's blessing over the teaching of his word. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for the family of God gathering here to hear your word preached. God, I pray that you will just open up our hearts and minds um, to what the Holy Spirit wants to teach us today. Bless Pastor Tommy as he comes and presents the word. Father, I pray that we would just be ready to receive what the Holy Spirit would have for us to change and be more like you. We thank you for Jesus and all that he's done for us. In the name, the only name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Two billion, two hundred million. It's a pretty big number, isn't it? Seems like a lot. Two billion, two hundred million. Two billion, two hundred million people. That that's how many people in the world today claim to be Christians. That's that's fully one third of the entire population claim to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. That's pretty, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? I mean, we can, we, can, we can argue how many are practicing Christians. Uh, we can argue how many are nominal Christians. But the fact still remains, over 2,200,000,000 over two people consider themselves, self-identify as Christians. Have you ever realized that? I make this point because... I think we forget what is represented in the story that we read today. The, the story we read today um, isn't about a happening in the church that day. In other words, it, this, isn't, this isn't an event for a portion of the church. This isn't the recording of an event taking place in the church that day. It is the event at the church that day. And what I mean is, the number of Christians in the world at the start of that day was 120. Now, I want you to let that sink in a moment. The number of Christians in the world, the entirety of the Christian church on that day was 120 people. Period. That's all. That's everyone. 120. 120 people gathered in the upper room. 
on that Pentecost Sunday. Fully unified, the Bible says. Fully devoted to constant prayer, the Bible says. And then fully empowered by the Holy Spirit. They were in that upper room. The 120 of them were in that upper room because Jesus Christ told them to go into Jerusalem and wait for the Spirit of God. 120 of them were in that upper room when when the Spirit of God rushed through that place like a mighty wind. 120 of them had the Spirit of God in, in flames of fire, a light on them, and they began to speak in other tongues. The entirety of the Christian church, the entirety of the Christian church in the world 120 of them had the Spirit of God move in them in such a way that they poured into the streets and they began to declare the glories of Jesus Christ in languages that they had not yet been taught. The entirety of the entire Christian world, the Christian church, was that 120. That 120 professed the name of Jesus Christ and the crowd that was there was cut to the heart, it says, and they asked, What must we do? That 120 declared to them that you must repent and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And that 120 that day grew to 3,000. There was 3,120 Christians in the world on that day. I've been talking about the unstoppable church, the the title of our, of our series has been, has been Unstoppable. And the reference we're making is to the statement that Jesus Christ makes to the disciples after he asks them, uh, who do you say that I am? Peter responds with, with, with those icon- that iconic uh, response where he, says, where he says, you are the Christ, you are the Savior, you are the Messiah, you are the Son of God. And Jesus Christ responds and he says, flesh and blood has not revealed that to you. And it's upon this rock, it is upon this truth, it is upon the declaration that I am the Christ, that I am the Savior of the world, that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. As we've talked through this, we've, we've reiterated the, the implication of Jesus Christ's statement there. He's, he's saying, listen, I will build my church and the, and, and the gates of hell will not be able to protect against it, will not be able to defend against it. That the church of Jesus Christ will go forward and will break down the gates of hell, will break down the gates of death and darkness, and will set free the captives. That the offensive, that the, that the unstoppable church will move forward into the darkness of this world. This is the unstoppable church that we will go into the darkness of this world, take back the captives, those that are bound by sin, those who are bound by greed, those who are bound by fear, those who are bound by addiction and abuse and brokenness, and even legalism. Can there be any greater evidence of the unstoppable nature of the Holy Spirit-empowered church than the two billion 200 million Christians in the world today. Understand what this means. 2,000 years ago, the church was 120. 2,000 years ago, the church was 120. To go from 120 to 2,200,000,000 in 
in 2,000 years, you would have to add uh, 10 million people every single year. You would have to add 27,000 people every single day of every single year for 2,000 years to get to 2 billion 200 million people. And remember, this is not even counting for the people dying off every generation. This is if the same people who were saved after Peter's sermon were still here today worshiping with us and are counted among that 2 billion, 200 million. Which means... Which means the daily spread of the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit, has been exponentially greater than even what I'm saying. It's had to be more than 27,000 every day. It's had to be more than 101 million every single year for 2,000 years. The rise of the unstoppable church has taken place with that type of force in spite of the efforts of men like Caiaphas and Nero who endeavored to strangle the church in its infancy. In spite of a corrupted church hierarchy that used methods like like the Great Inquisition to obscure God's word and subjugate God's people. In spite of the efforts of Marxists and atheists who who have made it their goal over the last 150 years to kill Christians and destroy Christianity, but have instead produced the greatest century of Christian expansion in the history of the world. Through it all, the unstoppable church of Jesus Christ has grown from 120 gathered in the upper room to 2.2 billion. Upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is the church to which we belong. This is the church to which we have been called. Too often we act as though we are just hanging on. We buy into this study or or that report about, about the church, how it's losing ground or losing influence. Listen, you have to remember, God has always been faithful and God has always been building the church. And the only question, I think, is whether we will participate, whether we will be a part of the glorious move of Jesus Christ as his church takes back those who have been held captive by the darkness of this world. I want to give you guys some historical perspective that, that, that many of us might not know. Sociologists looked at Christian adherence in the United States at 10 different points in our history. The first point was in 1776. At that time, 18% of the U.S. population would be considered adhering Christians. This may come as a surprise to many of you. Only 18%, less than 20% of the entire U.S. population were practicing Christians in 1776. As I said, for a lot of us, that may come as a surprise. 
But if really, if you think deeper about the historical background of the founding of our nation, it probably shouldn't. Many of the Europeans uh, who immigrated here uh, had very weak family, family uh, attachments. Many, many of them were on the run from punishment. Uh, many of them were on the run from the law. Many of them left their homes in shame, trying to get a new start. These type of people don't, don't usually have deep religious convictions. In fact, a lot of us don't realize that this nation was settled with, with, with uh, as many as 50,000 convicts that were expelled from England as a part of the original founding of this country. The authors of the study that I'm referring to provide context that many of us, I don't think, uh, realize. He says, they say, America is burdened with more nostalgic illusions about the colonial era than any other period in their history. Our conceptions of that time are dominated by a few powerful illustrations of pilgrim scenes. There's the baptism of Pocahontas or the pilgrims walking through the woods to church on the first Thanksgiving. Had our classroom walls also been graced with colonial scenes of drunken revelry and and ballroom brawling, or women in risque ball gowns, or of gamblers, or of rakes, a better balance might have been struck. 18% of Americans in 1776 were practicing Christians. It was about this time that the English thinker Thomas Wollstone said Christianity would be gone by 1900. It was around this time that Voltaire said religion would crumble in 50 years. It was around this time that Thomas Jefferson predicted the imminent demise of Christianity in less than 100 years. It was around this time that August Comte declared that human society was outgrowing its theological stage of social evolution and would be replaced by sociology as the moral standard. In 1776, less than 20% of Americans were practicing Christians, and the demise of Christianity had been predicted. But what happened instead? By 1850, the number of Americans practicing Christianity doubled to 40%. By 1950, it would triple to 60%. What changed the trajectory and made fools of the greatest secular thinkers of that day? In the words of sociologist Dr. Bradley Wright, the big change happened when the Great Awakening in the early 1800s with the time of Charles Finney and the revival meetings. I want you guys to think about that. I want you guys to think about what is it that changed the direction of, the, of, the, of, the, of the, not just the nation, but the world. It was a revival initiated by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in a powerful way. Why do I recite all this to you? I want your minds to be on this because the story of the church revealed in Acts 2 is the pattern of God's moving in his church throughout time and until Christ returns. It is the story of revival by the power of the Holy Spirit and the emergence of a dynamic church that impacts its world. When we read this account, 
It reiterates the crux of the question I stated earlier. God will build his church. It is only a question of whether we will participate, whether we will be a part of the glorious move of Jesus Christ. Upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. You see, the revival looks like this. And let me, and let me emphasize something. This, this, this revival, this, this, this act of revival that the Holy Spirit undertakes mirrors the revival of our own personal spiritual existence, of our own personal spiritual experience. If you're in, if you're in need this morning of spiritual renewal, this is true for you as much as it is for the church. Whenever true revival has come, In the 2,000-year history of the church, it has always been characterized by a church that has been, the church moved by the Holy Spirit, moved by the Holy Spirit to pray, becoming deeply aware of their need for a touch from God. This is is so deeply important to the start of revival in the life of the church and the life of a believer. The Holy Spirit moves on you. The Holy Spirit touches you and draws you into this place where, you, where you're beginning to pray for a touch of the Holy Spirit. The, the reason why this is so important is because it is the starting point of the, of the acknowledgement of your need for Jesus. It is the starting point of your acknowledgement of your dependency upon Christ. It begins us all down the right path where we say what I have in my life, what I have figured out, what I have done, the experience I had, are not enough to suffice. We need something greater than anything we've experienced before. This is what you see. This is what you see in the story in Acts chapter 2. The... This, this group of people, this 120, went into the upper room because they, know that they knew they needed a touch from God. They knew that what they have gotten to this point wasn't enough. They knew that what they were, what, what, what they were doing wasn't going to suffice, and that they needed to, a touch from Jesus. This is what happens in our own personal conversion. It's what happens when every one of us, whenever, at any point we come to the Lord, Because we come to this place in which we realize what I've done to this point, what I've been trying to do to this point, hasn't done it. It hasn't touched me. It hasn't hasn't renewed me. This is the same thing that has to happen in the life of a church. We have to realize that, that we need to be seeking the Holy Spirit and His touch in our lives because we can't figure it out. We don't have the answer. This... This drive to pray, this drive to seek the touch of the Lord is is then followed by by an experience with the Holy Spirit that uniquely changes your perspective. It it, it reveals a greatness about God that transcends any experience you've had before. What you see in this story in Acts chapter 2 is is they knew they needed a touch. They knew that they, they needed something different in their lives. And as they stepped into that moment, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit responded to their prayer life. The Holy Spirit revealed into their lives something they had never experienced before. Something that was better than anything they'd ever had in their lives. 
And that's saying a lot, right? These are people who walked for years with Jesus, who heard him teach, who saw him do miracles. And yet, the experience they had when the Holy Spirit came upon them transcended even that experience. And understand something. When I say that, I'm not saying something sacrilegious. This is something that Jesus Jesus Christ himself said when he said, I must go. It is better that I go so that the Holy Spirit may come. Jesus is the one that says, says, greater things than these, greater things than I did, you're going to do by the power of the Holy Spirit in your lives. And so when he came into this place, as they sought the touch of the Holy Spirit in their lives, because they knew they needed that touch, the Spirit of God moved on them and allowed them to discover something so much greater, so much deeper than anything they'd ever experienced in their lives before. As I say, this is the experience. If if you're here this morning and you've given your life to Jesus Christ and you've walked with him for any period of time, you know in your own life what I'm saying is 100% true. What what brought you to this moment was all of a sudden you you discovered Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit stepped into your heart and into your life and you realize what I have in Jesus, what I have by the power of the Holy Spirit is so much greater than anything else I've ever experienced. It's so much greater than than, than any experience I've had at parties. It's so much greater than any experience I've had in a relationship. That this touch of the Holy Spirit in me transcends anything that that I've experienced in this world. And it's the same thing that moves in the lives of a church that is looking to be dynamic, that is looking to be impactful. When we realize that nothing we can create matches what the Holy Spirit does in the lives of people. It's not because somebody's a great speaker. It's not because somebody's a great musician. It's because the Holy Spirit has changed people immensely. And then that experience moves the church or the individual to a place of Christ-focused supremacy. (coughs) What I mean by that is you live for His purpose. Because you've discovered in this moment that he is everything. That there is nothing in this world that you would trade him for. That there is nothing in this world that matches the glory and the power and the touch of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ in your life. That you would never go to any, any point at any length and trade that away. We see that in the, in the story in the book of Acts with the, with the Christians. Time and time again, they're challenged. Time and time again, they're they're, they're instructed to give up this Jesus thing. They get arrested, they're taken to prison, and they approach and they say, listen, I'll tell you what, we'll let you go, you just promise not to preach Jesus anymore. You know what they said? What were we going to do, obey man or obey God? And they went out and they began to continue to preach Jesus in spite of everything. Because they were so convinced, they they had such a deep personal conversion and belief that this is truth and this is right. Again, if you've experienced this touch of Jesus Christ in your life and you've given your heart to him, you understand exactly what I'm saying. You can't not claim the supremacy of Jesus. You can't not claim that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. 
Somebody could come up to me and they could say, Tommy, I'll give you a million dollars to deny Jesus as Savior of the world. And I'd go, I, I can't. They could come up to me and they could say, I'll give you a hundred million dollars to, de- to declare that Jesus is no longer Savior. And I'd go, I can't. They could switch their tack. They could come to me and they could say, Tommy, I'm going to take you and I'm going to throw you in, in, in prison until you declare that Jesus Christ is not Lord. You understand what takes place in the life of a believer is we, we come to this place where we are convinced of the fact, of the reality, of the truth that the supreme identity of Jesus Christ is Savior of the world and nothing can change that. I don't know how to not believe that. I've said this before. It's like you coming to me and saying, Tommy, I'll give you a million dollars if you stop being Italian. I, I can't. If I wanted to, I couldn't. It is the reality of who I am. I was born with this. I have this. I can't erase that truth. I can't erase that reality. It wouldn't matter how much you offered me. I could, can't change it. This is the conviction that the believer has when they come to the reality that he is supreme. This is the reality that the church needs to have if we are going to be that church that invades the darkness. You see, that Pentecost was the first Christian revival and that it was a revival from dead, cold, legalistic, and traditional Judaism to a dynamic life in Jesus Christ. And what followed from that, what what follows from, from that revival is what follows from every true revival. It is a church that is dynamic. When we talk about being a part of the move of Christ, this is, this is the way in which we participate in that dynamic move in his church. This morning's text gives us three marks of a dynamic church. And I believe three marks of a dynamic believer. When revival takes place and the Holy Spirit moves on you to begin to pray and to seek the touch of God in your life. When the Holy Spirit responds to that seeking and reveals to you something greater, something better than anything you've ever experienced, and that thing becomes paramount in your lives, becomes the supreme understanding of your very being, your very existence, all of a sudden it pours out into these dynamic marks of a dynamic church and believer. The first one that's revealed here in our text is that you are devoted to the apostles' teaching. It says, after this experience, after this touch, after this move of the Spirit, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. The local church at Jerusalem continually devoted themselves to learning and doing the apostles' doctrine or the apostles' teaching. You see, God, God commissioned the apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit to instruct the church in how to live this life in the truth of Jesus Christ. It's really fascinating to me um, how often I hear people come to church, whether it's here or Lake Country or down in Rock County. And I, and I swear, it's probably almost once a week. Somebody will come to church and they'll be like, 
man, it, it has been so hard to find a church that actually preaches the Bible. I mean, people all the time coming up to us and go, man, I've been to, and I, and I haven't been out there. I, this is the church I go to, and I do the preaching, so I know what happens here. But, I go to, I, I, but I'm told that you go out there in, the, in these different churches, and they're like, I've had people say this. They say, like, you know what? I sat there for 30 minutes in this message, and I didn't hear the name of Jesus spoken once. I sat there and listened to a 40-minute message, and, and they, they read like half of a verse, and the rest of the time, the entire conversation was about self-help. You see, a dynamic church is a church that is devoted to the Word of God, devoted to the teaching of the apostles. You see, the apostles gave the church apostolic teaching, and this has been recorded for us in the New Testament. Apostolic teaching is still in the church today, and the apostles are still speaking to the church through the New Testament. You've got to understand something. Doctrine is important. A lot of us, a lot of us, a lot of us, that, that word doctrine or, or that word theology, those, the word theology becomes like this anathema to us. But the reality is, doctrine is about knowing God's plan for the fulfillment of Christians' lives on this earth. It is impossible to live by truth you do not know. Right living depends upon right doctrine. How do I know what God wants for me? How do I know what God is speaking to me about? By studying his word. By studying his doctrine. By studying his theology. You should never say that experience with the Lord is what matters and not doctrine. And you should never say doctrine without experience with the Lord is what matters. Doctrine is basic to how we experience Jesus Christ. And how we experience Jesus Christ is a fulfillment of the doctrine that we discover in his word. Devote yourselves to the apostles' teaching. The second mark of a dynamic church is a church that is devoted to fellowship and the breaking of bread. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread. The word fellowship is translated from the Greek word koinonia. And a lot of times I feel like the word fellowship just doesn't quite capture the depths of that Greek word koinonia. Koinonia means to hold all things in common, to to share together, sharing fully and deeply with one another. It it means to be fully unified, being, being of one heart, of one mind, of one passion, of one purpose. That is the unification of people together in this way that that transcends just relationship, but it goes even deeper than that. You see, these new Christians began to know and began to love each other. Most of the 3,000 people were strangers and had come from various parts of the world. They did not know each other, but suddenly 3,120 were saved and they had this wonderful bond in Christ Jesus. I want you guys to understand the depths of this relationship, the depths of the call of this fellowship. Here are all these people 
from, from diverse backgrounds, from diverse experiences, people who were slave owners, people who were slaves, people who were Greek, people who were Jews, people who come from all over the world speaking different languages, and all of a sudden the power of the Holy Spirit pours out on them, and they give their hearts to Christ, and they are brought together into koinonia, into fellowship, into a unified sharing and experience. Why? Because they all knew Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ was now alive in them, and it unified them. I'm going to tell you, the greatest instrument of reconciliation the world has ever known is when we give our lives to Jesus Christ. It makes us shared. It makes us brothers and sisters in Him. It breaks down every single barrier that divides the world and brings us together under the banner and love of Jesus Christ. We are the family of God. It is paramount. It is number one. It is supreme in our lives. Do you understand how this works together, right? See, when we come to that understanding, we come to that realization that the supreme identity of our being, the the supreme value of our life is Jesus Christ, that's what unifies us. That's what's important. That's what matters. The moment we allow anything else to divide us is the moment we declare that that thing is more important than the work of Jesus Christ in our lives. The thing that reconciles us among socioeconomic statuses is Jesus Christ. It makes no difference whether you're poor or whether you're wealthy or whether you're a slave or whether you're a slave owner because Jesus Christ transcends all of that experience. The greatest instrument of racial reconciliation is Jesus Christ. There is nothing that, is, that, 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 that takes a place above the experience of Jesus Christ in our lives because he is supreme in us. The moment we allow our experiences, whatever they are, to separate us is the moment we've said it's more important than the work of Jesus Christ in my life. The call to us as the church is to be in fellowship one with another. There was this wonderful sense of community, of commonality, of belonging to one another. They saw themselves as a family in need of one another. They saw themselves as a body working with one another. This is what the church is to be. I say this all the time. The church is not something you come to. It's something you belong to. We don't come to family. We belong to a family. Being in the church is not this Sunday morning experience. Being in the church is experiencing life with one another, is sharing with one another, is caring for one another. I, I mean, I can go through the apostles' teaching. I can go through all of the, all of the epistles. And I, can, and I could stand here for the next three hours and I could recite for you passages that say things like rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. I can share with you where it, says, where, 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 where it tells us that, that, that we should bear one another's burdens. Where it says that we should confess our sins one to another. Where it tells us that we should spur one another onward. 
The instruction to the church is to be so close to each other, so engaged with one another, that we are there for each other, that we care about each other, that we meet each other's needs, that we call each other out, that we hold each other accountable. This is the mark of a dynamic church. And it is not coincidental that the way in which this passage lays out the, 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 the status of the church, the, 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 the structure of the church that it says, and they devoted themselves to, to the fellowship and to breaking of bread. That declaration of breaking of bread indicates two, two distinct ideas that are, that are related to one another. It, 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 understand, it, it, it conveys the idea of sitting down over a meal together and breaking bread. And it also indicates the Lord's Supper as they came together and broke bread one with another. At the starting point, particularly in this culture, and I think, and I think even as I say particularly in this culture, I, I think we understand it in our own culture. When we come together for a meal, when somebody comes over to your house and sits at your table and you share a meal together, there is a depth of relationship that takes place there that doesn't happen otherwise. Right? You know that experience I'm talking about? You begin to understand them. You begin to hear them. You've opened your home to them. That takes place there, right? They were expressing this idea that we open our homes and you come into our place and we sit and we provide you food and we interact. But it was referring in that regard to what, to what was known as the love meal or the love feast. Because when they, when they would gather, they would come together for that love meal and they would always finish it with the Lord's table. With communion. The, the early church would mirror the experience of the disciples and Jesus when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. What did the disciples do? They came together with Jesus in that room, and they shared a meal together. And then at the conclusion of that meal, Jesus took the bread, and he took the cup, and he says, this is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood which is poured out for a covenant with you. And this was the experience that the, that the early church engaged in. They fellowshiped, they had, they had this closeness, and then what they would do is they would break bread together, and in that breaking of the bread, there was the declaration of the value of the body of Christ. And when I say the value of the body of Christ, it's meant two ways, in the same way in which P, Paul meant it two ways in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when he admonishes the Corinthians about the way in which they're taking communion. He's saying, he's saying, listen, every time you take the emblems, every time you, you take the bread and you, and, you, and you take the cup, you're declaring the death of Jesus Christ. You're declaring your part in the church because of the death of Jesus Christ. And then he goes in and he says, if you, if, if you, if you do this without consideration for the body, without concern for the body, without preference for the body, He's saying you're eating and you're drinking damnation because you are a hypocrite. You're saying, I'm receiving Jesus Christ's death on the cross. I'm receiving his outpouring of blood. I'm receiving his brokenness so that I might have salvation, but I don't care that that was the price he paid to enter me into his family, enter me into his church. So when they make that declaration and they say they devoted themselves to fellowship and the breaking of bread. He is talking about the depth of appreciation they had for the work of Christ to bring them to salvation and the appreciation they have for the work of Christ to bring them into this community of faith. 
A dynamic church, a dynamic believer deeply values the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that brought you to his church. You don't see this relationship as something to be, to be taken lightly, something to be disregarded. But you realize that the, that the Son of God, the perfect Lamb, gave his life that he might purchase your entrance into this family. Don't see it lightly. Don't take it flippantly. The relationship we have as brothers and sisters in Christ transcends everything else. I don't care how much money you have or don't have. I don't care how successful you were or weren't. I don't care what color you are. I don't care where you come from. What I believe is that Jesus Christ's body was broken, his blood was shed, so that you and I might be brothers and sisters in Christ. I value that relationship. In a dynamic church, is devoted to that fellowship. If you don't cherish, care for, hold dear the church, your celebration of Christ's gift, his sacrifice, is hypocritical. They devoted themselves to fellowship and the breaking of bread. And the third mark of a dynamic church is that they were devoted to prayer. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The first Christian church of Jerusalem was a praying church. It was birthed in prayer, and it was sustained by prayer. We've talked about this in the past about how the church was birthed by a group of people who came together and the, and the word says it was continually, obstinately devoted to prayer. That the church was birthed by a group of people uh, who, were, who were given to prayer. They were going to pray and it didn't matter. They were going to pray. But the church wasn't just birthed in that prayer. It was sustained by that prayer. If you go through the book of Acts and the, and, and the history of that, that early church, 31 different times in 28 chapters, it makes reference to praying, prayed together, prayed for one another, lifted up prayers. 31 out of 28 chapters. I want you to reflect for a moment. If you looked at 28 chapters of your life, would you see, would you see it marked by 31 uh, instances of prayer? Or do you see prayer? Or do we see prayer as the church as something we kind of do, sometimes do? I've been so encouraged as we've been talking about this idea, as we've, we've been challenging people to expand their prayer life so that we might be that dynamic church, to see people participate. We've had some Sundays where pre-service prayer before first service is so full, we can barely fit in the room, which is cool. Don't feel like you're not welcome. Keep coming. Because as I said, my goal is that someday we can't fit in there and it's, we're using this room as the preset for his prayer room because there's so many of us seeking the face of God as the body of Christ. We've had these wonderful times where the Spirit of God has moved. This last, uh, If you missed this last Wednesday, which was our prayer and worship time, um, you missed something. You really did. The power of God was on the move there. The power of God was doing stuff, and we just spent time 
you know, a good hour or so just in prayer and worship and seeing God do incredible things in our own hearts and lives, in my own personal life, I can say that the Holy Spirit ministered to me and worked in my life. I think everybody who was there would say the same thing. There was about 60 of us gathered, and it was an incredible time. The dynamic church is a praying church. The dynamic believer is a praying believer. And even as I say that, I know there are so many people out here who struggle with it. Let me tell you something. I am not an easy prayer. I'm just not. Like, like there are these, there are these, like, these Christians who are like mutant Christians that just love to pray, right? Like, it's just like, oh, I love to pray. Let's just go pray. That's not me. That's, I mean, that's entirely not me. That is not how I'm wired. And some of you are probably sitting there going, yeah, I pray, pray, yeah, but I just can't do it. I can't do it. Well, here's my encouragement to you. Here's, here, here's what I would say to you if you struggle to pray. Just do it. Just pray. Just do it. Just make sure that this is what you're going to do. In the, in the, there, this, is, this is the type of thing that you have to put your head down and say, Jesus Christ has called me to pray. He's called me to draw nearer to the Lord. And as you draw nearer to him, as you, as you take those times, as you just do it, it's incredible how God transforms you, how God changes you. Have you ever met that person who, who, who has to work out? You ever met that person who like gets that point and they, and they just, they just, they can't make it through their day if they didn't work out, if they didn't run, if they didn't, you ever met that person? I'm not that person. But every single person I've ever met who's like that didn't start out that way. Every single person I ever met like that, they weren't like, oh my gosh, my arms hurt so much. I need to do this some more. I'm so tired. I want to do that some more. Most people don't embrace the pain of it, but over time it becomes such a part of their lives that they don't know what they would do without it. I never get past that like eight minutes of working out to want it that badly. But if you struggle to pray, the only key is to pray. Find those moments, find those times. Begin to to make that an appointment for you. Start by being here for pre-service prayer. Just do it. Just, just do it. It's 8.30, get here. If you, if you come to second service at 10.30, go to the prayer room and be there. Just do it. Start with that. That's what you're going to do. Begin to then make an appointment every single day. Begin to make an appointment every single week, whatever it is, to work your way up. Because as you do it, it's amazing how, how that obstinance, how that stubbornness to pray, takes hold of your heart and your spiritual life and you don't know what you would do if you didn't pray. Listen to me. The dynamic church and the dynamic believer is one that is devoted to sound doctrine and God's word. It is, uh, it is one that is devoted to fellowship and the breaking of bread. And it is one who is devoted to prayer. When the church struggles, when the believer struggles, it is because we have neglected these marks. The churches in America that struggle, the churches around the world that struggle, are ones that have exchanged a commitment to doctrine for self-help and social programs. 
They have abandoned the fellowship of the church and the sense of awe for Christ's sacrifice to become an event or a Christian show. And they have seen prayer as a sometime act of meditation instead of an always time act of devotion. I'm going to tell you this right now. Don't wonder and don't doubt God if you are spiritually weak when you have chosen a kind of faith walk instead of a devoted faith walk. If you're not doing this, if this is not the mark of your Christian faith, don't expect to have a strong Christian walk. If you've not come to the point in which you say that which, which, which rectifies me, that which, that's what regulates me, that which, that's what, that's, that's what cha- changes me and that which trains me is God's word, if that's not the reality, and instead it's what this person thought or this person thinks or that book that I've read, if you've chosen to isolate yourself, if you've chosen not to engage, if you've chosen not to be held accountable, to be prayed for, to be lifted up, to be spurred on by your brothers and sisters, and instead you've chosen as your closest relationship those who do not value Jesus Christ, if you've made prayer this thing that isn't for you, but it's for every other Christian, and you're struggling, well, of course you are. It is the devotion to this dynamic walk that will allow you to see God move in incredible ways. And let me tell you something. These dynamic marks produce a dynamic church. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see, this is how you go from 120 believers to 2.2 billion. This is how the church and believers stand strong and invade the kingdom of darkness to set the captives free, to be devoted to sound doctrine, committed to true fellowship, and given to constant prayer. This is the confrontation of God's word with our life. If you don't want a dynamic walk, then ignore what I'm saying. If you don't want a dynamic church, then ignore what I'm saying. But if you want God to move, to be on the move in your life and in your world and in your community, then open your hearts to what the Holy Spirit is saying to you and submit to his instruction and to his word.